0: Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of the Brothers Karamazov. Today we are getting some really much more typical Dostoevsky. After two whole lectures and discussions about two whole huge sections of this book that are very atypical, the the original, original exposition scene where we're introducing all the characters, and then that huge fiasco at the monastery where there's so many characters involved, we're finally seeing what Dostoevsky is kind of especially good at doing and what he is most famous for doing and what is most typical of his novels. Namely, we have one of our major characters, in this case Alyosha, going from house to house, meeting people on a fairly one-on-one or one-on-two, one-on-three situation, and moving on to the next house. Um, This is typical of crime and punishment, it's typical of demons, it's typical of the idiot. Like, this is the model by which most scenes in Dostoevsky's novels work. You have a character, he goes a-visiting, he meets some funny characters, other people who are, you know, important to the plot in some ways. You see how they interact with him and with the other characters in the room, and then he just moves on along to the next place. Um, and we'll see this a lot in the rest of Brothers Karamazov as well. Like, Alyosha bustling about is going to be kind of the main way that we we get news about the characters and the main way that the plot is going to move along. Um, but I also want to emphasize that this is this is Alyosha. At long last, we are seeing our hero in action. Like in the the second chapter, we ha- were kind of positioned bes- behind Miusov, as I talked about, which is weird because Miusov was barely even a footnote in the exposition uh, chapter and. Is gonna very much just sort of vanish off the face of the earth for the rest of the book. Um, he's not important to a lot of what's going on here. He was just useful to Dostoevsky as a perspective character to introduce all of our our various relationships and all of the various protagonists and stuff. And he was interesting for thematic reasons as well, since Miusov is kind of very insecure about his intelligence, and because he's sort of trying to get into these discussions with Ivan and elsewhere and the others. Um, Um, and because he is also, like, just offended by the whole thing, and also kind of wanting to be offended by the whole thing, it's complicated. But Alyosha is not complicated. Um, and in fact, if there is something complicated about Alyosha, it's the fact that he is in this weird position that we talked about in our first lecture, namely... I said right at the outset that Alyosha is Dostoevsky's most successful attempt to find a romantic hero, somebody who has all of the human virtues and lives them despite the the difficulty surrounding him, despite the struggle that he faces on all sides. And I emphasize then that we need to watch for two components about Alyosha. We need to see that he is good, and we need to see that he is believable. Um, And this is our first opportunity to do that. And this is also the first opportunity we see that will strain our belief in Alyosha. Um, On the one hand, I think he does work as a good character. Like, the one sort of moral failing, moral weakness that he seems to have at this stage in the, the novel is that he is kind of apprehensive around women. Probably because he hasn't interacted with them all that much. Like, we get this line from Dostoevsky that on the one hand, he has been raised by women, like, his entire life, um, and he has, you know, not noticed the fact that he has been surrounded by women at all times. Um, If anything, his relationship to the men in his life is more strained, is more artificial in some sense. But at the same time, you very much get the sense here that Alyosha is naive, innocent, has no experience with the romantic element of interacting as a man with a woman. Um, And he gets very easily embarrassed as a consequence. Like when Katerina Ivanovna sits him down, he's very struck, almost overawed uh, by her beauty. Like it, it sort of silences him. Um, But at the same time, this works for him. Uh, As much as, you know, Alyosha is sort of dumbstruck by women and really does not have a whole lot to say, and and even waffles at one point about, like, how exactly to understand the relationship between uh, Dmitry and Grushenka, um, at the same time, this endears him to others. Uh, Which brings us to the second major characteristic that Dostoevsky first tells us about, and then we very much see in action, namely, everybody loves this guy. Um, this was an important point in the exposition chapter. This is a really important point now that we're seeing it sort of play out here. Everybody confides in al Everybody. Like, over the course of this section, we see Dimitri... Bear his soul to Alyosha. We see both Fyodor, his father, and Ivan say that they love and that they trust him. Um, Ivan even goes out of his way to sort of arrange a secret meeting with Alyosha. Um, We see Katerina Ivanovna practically fall over herself for uh, Alyosha and entrust herself to him. And we also see Grushenka, for that matter. Like, this woman of very dubious morality who has literally just offended Katerina Ivanovna to her face, she, on the other Hand is very friendly to Alyosha. Like, it seems to be either flirting with him or trusting him. It's not quite clear based on the little bit of information we have. But the key here is that all of these characters who have these very complex relationships with one another who are very strained in each other's presence and feel awkward with one another you know we've got Dmitri and Fyodor who are practically trying to kill each other at this point we've got Ivan and his intellectual reserve we've got Katerina Ivanovna her complex relationship with both Ivan and Dmitri and Grushenka and her complex relationship with both Dmitri and Fyodor all of these characters who should have every reason to be guarded in front of a member of the Karamazov family they aren't they are absolutely like open to Alyosha even knowing that he is fraternizing with the enemy in so many cases like he literally goes from talking to Dimitri at length to talking to Fyodor his at this point mortal enemy and neither of them have any problem with this both of them assume that Alyosha will do the right thing And they're not wrong. Everybody trusts Alyosha, and everybody trusts Alyosha for good reason. This is what I suspect might strain believability here. Um, It's not abnormal for this to happen in Dostoevsky novels. Like, like many of his protagonists have this sort of innocence about them, and many characters very much open their hearts to the the protagonist for one reason or another. Like, Prince Mishkin has a lot of the same qualities in in The Idiot. Um, But at the same time, it's... It's also very useful from a storytelling standpoint. Like, this allows Dostoevsky to give these characters opportunities to bear themselves. You know, Dmitri. Shows us everything that he is in this moment. Like, we saw Dimitri kind of get heated in the the monastery when he's talking to his father, but we don't know why. It's still very mysterious to us how Dimitri behaves. Here, we get three chapters consecutively where Dimitri just opens himself, like, to the point that it doesn't even make sense at times. The whole first chapter, the confession in verse, is just this wild smattering of Dmitry quoting poetry some Schiller some of the other Russian writers at the time and some of Dostoevsky's own so possibly even Dmitry's own verse all of this just in a mishmash like it makes sense in his head and maybe if we specifically parse out everything that's going on it could make sense to us as well but it just comes out in a jumble um but I don't want to get to Dmitri just yet. Like, as much as I do want to emphasize that it is convenient for Dostoevsky, it is convenient for us that everybody is, in fact, bearing their soul to Alyosha, I do want to stress, on the one hand, that this is kind of unbelievable. Um, like, there are people like that. I mean, I, I honestly suspect that I may be one of them. Um, good listeners tend to inspire people to just unload all of this information. Like, People who are interested in themselves, people who like to talk about themselves, often look for an opportunity to find someone who is willing to listen to them. And when they do, they do unload. Like, I've had my fair share of conspiracy theorists, even before that was, like, popular in the age of Trump. Or, you know, people with very strange ideas come to me and just, like, talk my ear off for an hour at a time. This isn't abnormal. It's not unusual. Um... So, like, on the one hand, I kind of wonder about this, that, like, Alyosha is simultaneously this really good person, but also this really good listener who everybody feels totally okay on loading on. On the other hand, it does happen. Um, it, It is within the realm of human experience. It's not totally unbelievable. This is something with precedent. This could very well be a convenient plot device or a way for Dostoevsky to sort of shortcut his way to a hero who is believable. But on the other hand, it is rooted in human nature. It could just as easily be Dostoevsky being a good observer of the way that human beings behave and interact with one another. It's complicated, and I not sure I can decide that. Like, we'll have to suspend our judgment for now and keep looking as Dostoevsky gives us more and more evidence of what's going on with Alyosha and, and whether or not we can we can trust him to be an actual character, somebody who we might actually encounter and not just some sort of caricature. Um, but the second character I definitely want to talk about today, uh, because it is the first one that Dostoevsky wants to talk about here in this section, and it is frankly surprising that he hasn't come up before, based on his positioning, is Smerdyakov. Smerdyakov plays a surprisingly important role in this section. He Dostoevsky kicks off these chapters with a discussion of Smerdyakov and his origins. We get a big scene in Fyodor's house as they're eating dinner, where Smerdyakov and Ivan start disagreeing with each other. We get that dispute, which I definitely want to talk about. Um, but I also want to talk about who Smerdyakov is. Because he is also in the overarching umbrella of the title, the Brothers Karamazov. He is one of the Karamazov Brothers, question mark? I want to emphasize this. It isn't clear... Um, We get a very weird scene at the beginning. Like First we get introduced to Grigory, the sort of manservant that's hanging around Karamazov's house. We get a very sort of intimate look at his life in that first chapter, which I don't want to pass over without acknowledging, because it is a good chapter and it gives us a good sense of who Grigory is, and that becomes important as well. Um, like, when, in fact, we get that big scene where Alyosha and Ivan and Smerdyakov and and Fyodor are all sitting in Fyodor's house, like, having a Karamazov dinner, so to speak, um, Grigory is an important character. Like, he doesn't say much. He, he's kind of hanging around just you know the way that a manservant would, but he has some really important things to do and, and things to to say. Like he's the one who keeps trying to check Smirnyakov. Every time that Smirnyakov says something particularly heretical or blasphemous or or crass, Grigory is like the one who who keeps you know arguing that everybody should be a little bit more pious. Um, we also see him protecting Fyodor, uh, and this is very much emphasized by Dostoevsky. Grigory is. Painstakingly loyal here, which is weird because Fyodor doesn't give a shit about him. Like, this, this is emphasized that Fyodor doesn't even think of this man, except insofar as we get these moments when Fyodor is feeling especially lonely at night and he just summons Grigory in to talk to him. Um, and Grigory feels bound to do this. Uh, we should emphasize this because this is unusual and at the same time, Kind of normal, I suspect. Dostoevsky is presenting us with a, re- a relationship between master and servant that we in our culture really don't have a connection to. Like, in America, we don't have man servants. We don't have servants at all. And that power imbalance is something that is very foreign to us, but it is very typical in other places and at other times. Um, And in fact, like, my wife and I, we just watched one of our favorite really dumb movies called Mordecai. It's Johnny Depp and Gwyneth Paltrow, and everybody hated it. Nobody watched it. Like, I think it has something like a 50% Rotten Tomatoes score. I don't know why nobody else likes it. Probably because that was the moment when everybody started hating Johnny Depp, but whatever. At any rate, they get this perfectly. Like, Johnny Depp is this... Aging minor lord in England, and he has this manservant, Jock, who accompanies him everywhere. And while it's set up to be funny, the way that Depp's character relies on Jock is what's important. Like, there is a dependence on his reliability, on his unflappability. Jock to death is the strong arm on which he supports himself. Um, When things go wrong, he keeps asking Jock, will it turn all right in the end? And you get this sense from Fyodor as well, Fyodor keeps saying, you know, keeps trusting Grigory, like Grigory has to be there in order for Fyodor to live his incredibly dissipated, lawless, and disgusting life. Grigory just turns a blind eye to it, which is all the more strange, because Grigory is himself rather pious. We get this interaction between Grigory and his wife, where apparently his wife had taken dancing lessons back when she was working for somebody else. And it's, like, the one time that Grigory beats her. And even when we say that he beats her, it's like he pulled her hair a little bit. Like, Dostoevsky emphasizes that Grigory is not brusque enough, mean enough, nasty enough to actually beat his wife, a practice that was actually really typical ap- among the peasants and the, the servants in Russian culture at this time. Grigory is pious, but Grigory is also a little spineless, very loyal to, to Fyodor, but loyal to the point where he, it interferes with his own sort of convictions. The one time that we see Grigory stand up to Fyodor is in defending Alyosha and Ivan's mother. Um, Like, this is the one time that he actually gets in the way of what Fyodor is doing, which is striking. Grigory is a complicated character, what little we've seen of him at this point. Um, And the one scene that is especially noteworthy to me is, like, when Dmitri does finally show up, and Grigory like stops him from entering the room, and Dmitri just like decks him, like knocks him down, pushes through, and then immediately proceeds to attack his father. You'll notice that Grigory's primary reaction is that he's ungrateful, um, that Dmitri and Ivan and Alyosha and Smerdyakov, for that matter, they have all been raised by Grigory, because Fyodor's a garbage father and can't be bothered with all this nonsense. And Grigory is annoyed specifically because Dimitri doesn't acknowledge that, doesn't regard him. Um, None of the kids do. Like, despite the fact that he was raised by all of them, Like, even Alyosha, who, you know, we regard as sort of the most compassionate, the most heroic of the bunch, he seems much more caught up with his own mother than he is with Grigory. Um, So Grigory is kind of a footnote to the Karamazov family, but he's also kind of the pillar on which it stands. Like, this family would have fallen apart a long time ago if it wasn't for the fact that Grigory was willing to do all the dirty work when Fyodor was, you know, passed out drunk or whatever the case may be. Um... It's striking, and seeing him in in this world, seeing him interact with the other characters, gives us just a sense of how messed up the whole thing is. Like, Grigory is strong in his way, but Grigory is also subservient, powerfully subservient. It defines who he is. Um, it's just interesting to sort of study and look at here. And notice that that ungrateful attack is the first thing that he sort of goes to for Dmitry, for Smerdyakov, anyone who doesn't sort of immediately accept Grigory's values is ungrateful. But Fyodor, his master, you would never say it about that, about him. Grigory is still loyal to a fault there. Um, But that is neither here nor there. I wanted to talk about Smerdyakov. And Smerdyakov's origin story is weird. Notice the way that it kind of pans out here. Like, apparently, there was this woman who was also in this category of the Shriekers, but is also apparently a holy fool, which, again, we should be, like, the lights should be flashing at this point in time. Um, It's remarkable at this point that, like, how many characters have been described as a holy fool. Like, Dostoevsky himself has characterized Alder as a holy fool, has talked about, uh... Fyodor's second wife, uh, Ivan and Alyosha's mother, as a shrieker and perhaps a bit of a holy fool. We've had Fyodor describe himself as a holy fool. We've had just a whole bunch of characters sort of try and interact with this idea of holy foolishness. Um, For Stinking Lizaveta, though, it definitely means something different than it has up until now, which just lends credence to the fact that this is a very ambiguous concept. Stinking Lizaveta, as nasty as that sound, as that sort of nomenclature sounds, this is the way we are going to refer to her, because it's the way that Dostoevsky refers to her, Sticky Elizabeth very much seems to fall into the category of a village idiot. Um, Like, this is how she is portrayed, this is how she is described. She is apparently this woman who was, you know, basically orphaned from a very young age, and she doesn't seem to have her wits, um, as they would have been put in the 19th century. Like, She's probably what we would call mentally disabled or mentally challenged or suffering from, you know, abnormal cognitive function or whatever sort of we want to describe here. Dostoevsky is not specific about her her condition. What he is specific about is what she does. Um, And it's noteworthy that Lizaveta, despite her mental limitations, is both universally loved by the community and is a relentlessly decent human being like she admittedly is walking around town in just a shift which is basically like a nightgown it is indecent um when the governor shows up and says you know it's indecent for this woman to be walking around in just a nightgown he's not wrong this would have been completely unacceptable um in you know cultured circumstances but that's the trick here this is russia it's not europe As much as this is a country that is trying to urbanize, trying to industrialize, trying to modernize, catch up with the rest of the 19th century, it hasn't yet, especially in the provinces. And the Karamazovs live in a backwater province of of Russia. Like, they have access to Moscow and St. Petersburg. We frequently hear about people going back and forth to Moscow and their relations in Moscow. But it doesn't change the fact we have all these rich people here, but we have a whole bunch of peasant society lying in the middle of it. And in the middle of this peasant society, we have stinking Veda who is not at all benefiting from the Russian industrialization, modernization activities. She is indifferent to it. And she remains indifferent to it. Like, remember, the governor shows up and says, you need to fix this. This is indecent. And then he disappears and nothing happens. Like That's the key here. On the one hand, Russia is very committed to modernization, and you will see that, especially in the major cities, but in the provinces, it's easily overlooked, frequently overlooked, and Dostoevsky is getting at the reality of his society. The fact that they are sort of caught between these two worlds, a Russia of the past and a Russia of the future, neither of which really exist in any truth at this point, but keep bouncing into each other, keep knocking heads. Lizaveta is a product of that old Russia, the way that things used to be. But the other thing about Lizaveta is, as much as it is indecent for her to be walking around practically naked, she is also relentlessly good. Like, Dostoevsky emphasizes this. People take Lizaveta in. Like, she'll show up in their dining room, and they'll just feed her, and, like, clothe, and help her, and do whatever, you know, they can to to help her but at the same time every time that she receives something every time that somebody gives her clothing every time somebody gives her money she immediately turns it over to the poor like without even thinking about it apparently because again this is a woman who is apparently not in you know possession of her wits she is not cogently acting in this way but whatever it is that drives her it is unselfish it is utterly altruistic some of that may just be habit, and some of that may be some kind of goodness. Like, again, they call her a holy fool. The idea here is that she is in some way afflicted with the divine. She is in touch with God in a way that people aren't, and it's causing her to behave in ways that people don't behave as a consequence, which is sort of the underlying common factor uniting all of the people who have been called holy fool at this point. Like the elders, Osima behaves weirdly, like not as sort of witless as Stinking Lizaveta does, but nonetheless he behaves in a way that is different from the other monks, that appears sort of strange or even stupid to the people who observe him, and yet we call him a holy fool. He is acting out of holiness. And Dostoevsky seems to confirm this, like everything that Elder Zosima did in our big second chapter at the monastery was largely because... He was in touch with the divine, and Dostoevsky, you know, is stressing. He sees to the core of people. He does what is right in the circumstances. He has this unflinching, correct Christian attitude towards everybody who comes to him. Lizaveta does as well, but Lizaveta's is more simple, more practical, more straightforward. She just does what is right out of habit. And when I say what is right, even that is messy. Like, it's not quite cut and dry. This is a person who, again, you know, isn't fully mentally rational, isn't fully mentally developed. Like, I'm trying to be as sensitive as I possibly can here. The fact of the matter is, like, I actually spent a lot of time in uh, the first years that I was out of college um, working at my high school as a substitute teacher, and I turned out to be fairly good at working with the, the uh, the special education room and the multiply disabled room the places where students of differing cognitive abilities were, were, you know, typically kept out of the general population of students because, let's be perfectly honest, high schoolers are often terrible to each other and can be especially terrible to people who are different or who can be taken advantage of. Um, it's a, weird sort of dynamic in schools. I'm certain it's not something you're unfamiliar with. Like everybody has to deal with this on some level, I suspect. Um, But I saw a lot of that firsthand. And one of the things that you notice is that, you know, so many of the, the people who are run through that program, who are mentally disabled, who are, you know, challenged in certain ways, they adopt habits. And those habits sort of stand in for the socialization that, you know, most of the student population would, would accept. Like, when we're talking about people who are further along on the spectrum, who have less sort of functionality in, in you know, society today, they develop these habits to protect themselves. And it's good that they do. Um, but without that guidance, without the, the sort of helping hand of the state, the schools, the the teachers in the special ed wing, or, or whoever was there at the time, you know, a lot of these people would not make it in society. Lizaveta seems to be on the low end of the autism spectrum, insofar so far as she has a lot of trouble functioning. But at the same time, the habits that she's created have endeared her to the community, and as a consequence, they look out for her. They protect her. Um, That whole, it takes a village to raise a child, well, in the same sense, this is how society functioned in an age when there were not such facilities to protect these people. Um, The village idiot, much as this is a demeaning and unpleasant term to talk about, this was a thing that frequently happened, and it frequently functioned specifically because the community around them was willing to protect them, took a special interest in them. So Lizaveta, Dostoevsky notices, is protected by the community. They like her. They help her as much as they can. Um, And she rejects that help in many cases, which in some cases endures her even more to that. But as much as this is a nice story of a town coming together to help a woman who is, you know, otherwise very troubled, that doesn't mean that she is 100% protected. So notice where this goes. Um, That at the same time as we have this woman who is blameless and virtuous and also just troubled, This is where we get Fyodor and his cronies kind of ruining things. Um, We get this story about Fyodor apparently coming home with a bunch of his buddies after his second wife has recently died, and they are all blind drunk, and they're all being stupid, and apparently they are having this conversation about whether Lizaveta sleeping on the ground in the middle of winter Um, would even constitute a human at this point? Could she even be attractive? Like, is she still a woman, in short? Which is the sort of stupid, crass conversation that, yes, continues to happen even to this day, men are pigs. Um, Dostoevsky is not shy about this. This is actually a core theme in the Brothers Karamazov, the sort of awfulness that people do to each other, behave towards each other, And Fyodor, to some degree, is kind of a representative here. And notice that Fyodor, in this situation, does what Fyodor does. He ups the stakes. He becomes the buffoon. He makes himself an even more foolish position because he always wants to push that extra limit. So he says yes. He says yes. He is attracted to her. And we get very little more than this. The insinuation here is that Fyodor may or may not have slept with her on the spot, like literally had sex with her, raped her, right then and there. At any rate, we're not given very much information. Like, it's certainly not something that Dostoevsky wants to talk about directly. It would be just so ridiculously inappropriate in this novel for a variety of reasons. And as a consequence, it sort of fits our mental, sen- our modern sensibilities as well, because we generally also tend to think that it is not good to focus on the suffering of of the the victim in this case, which would have happened if Dostoevsky had in fact told us for sure that that's what happened. But he leaves it up to ambiguity. Again, our sort of omniscient narrator in this case mentions that like this is as much hearsay as he has. Whether or not Fyodor did the deed is uncertain. Um, But Instead, the narrator provides a couple of other explanations. Maybe it was this convict who happened to be living here. Maybe it was Fyodor. Maybe it was one of the other men in town. Really, who's to say? As much as Lizaveta is protected by this town, she is also vulnerable. She is also just there with nobody to protect her, no men in her life, no economic security, no nothing. So somebody took advantage of her, and she got pregnant, and then she apparently, for some reason, climbed over the wall into Fyodor's backyard when she was in labor delivering the baby. This seems to be an admission on Fyodor's part, but it's not clear, and Dostoevsky doesn't make it clear, not yet anyway. The suggestion seems to be that Fyodor recognizes his responsibility in this case and allows this to transpire. At the very least, Grigory certainly seems to be willing to protect Lizaveta as much as this is possible, but it's clear that Fyodor knows about it in this case. He is also sort of tacitly letting this happen. So maybe he is accepting paternity for Smerdyakov in this case. At any rate, Lizaveta dies in labor, which just makes this all the more awful when you think about it. Like, here is this woman who has been doing nothing but good deeds all of her life, who does, in fact, need the protection of this town, of this city, and who is, at the end of the day, taken advantage of by someone, by someone who would clearly just lacks all scruples. Because, literally, as we said, there's nothing attractive about her. Like, that's a nasty thing to say, but it also has a practical consequence. Namely, nobody would take advantage of her out of some sense of, you know, sexual desire. Fyodor, or whoever it was who took advantage of her, seems to be doing this either out of desperation or out of some sort of just horribleness. And if in fact Fyodor is Smerdyakov's father, this represents possibly the greatest depravity that Fyodor is guilty of. And we've seen him guilty of a lot of depravity here. So uncomfortable as this is, we do get a child out of it, Smerdyakov. And Fyodor accepts Smerdyakov, even more than his own legitimate fathered children that we've seen before, which makes this all the weirder. Like, on the one hand, if in fact Fyodor is the father, perhaps this represents some level of responsibility, some level of guilt on his part. On the other hand, if he's not the father, what the heck does this mean? Like, it's not out of character. He could very well be leaning into this, you know, despicable rumor that he is, you know, the one who took advantage of stinking Lizaveta, or maybe he took compassion on her. Maybe this is his backward way of doing it. We don't know. The narrator doesn't give us information, and Fyodor hasn't announced his intentions yet. All we know is that Smerdyakov is raised in his house, and Fyodor is apparently interested in his upbringing in a way that he wasn't with either Dmitri, Ivan, or Alyosha. Fyodor takes a special interest in Smerdyakov for some reason. To the point that he even pays for Smerdyakov to go to cooking school. Like, Smerdyakov is the one of the Karamazovs, if Karamazov he is, who in fact takes a place in the household permanently. Like, Ivan is living there these days, but you very much get the sense that this is abnormal for him, that this is just a stop along the way. One day he's going back to Moscow, he's going to publish a whole bunch of articles and become some famous writer or something, whatever. He's just staying at home with his father because it is convenient at the moment. But Smerdyakov has been living with him from his birth to now, with the exception of the few years he spent in Moscow learning to become a chef, and a good one if Fyodor is to be trusted. Um, what's more notice that Smerdyakov and Grigory have problems as much as Smerdyakov like Grigory is a servant and therefore living in the servant's quarters and is basically part of Grigory's household when Grigory tries to raise Smerdyakov Smerdyakov shows a certain perversity in the way that he behaves Um, Grigory is staunchly religious but Smerdyakov is staunchly irreverent he refuses to acknowledge the truth of the Bible. And in fact, we get that particular scene where Grigory is sort of teaching him about the the creation. And we get this question from Smerdyakov, how did, where did the light come from on the first day if the sun and moon and stars weren't created until the fourth? And Grigory, who doesn't have the, you know, education to actually answer this question, like cuffs him over the side and he's like, shut up and do your reading. Um... There's an intelligence about Smerdyakov, but an intelligence paired with his perversity. And Smerdyakov, for us, the reader, is complicated. On the one hand, he is a well-developed human character. Dostoevsky doesn't have room in his novels for for like people who just stand in as symbols or, or algorithms or, or plot ciphers or whatever. There is depth to Smerdyakov's character. But at the same time, there is something... Very irredeemably perverse about him. There's something mean about Smerdyakov, which we can see here in his interactions with Grigory. We see them in his interactions with Ivan and Fyodor later on. And something about this also appeals to Fyodor. Fyodor. Fyodor admires this sick, perverse streak in Smerdyakov, it matches his own sick, perverse streak. If anything, that is all the evidence we need to confirm. That Smerdyakov is in fact Fyodor's son. That and the fact that Fyodor and the rest of the community seems to basically give him the patronymic Smerdyakov Fyodorovich, or rather, um, I forget his first name. Uh, they give him the patronymic Fyodorovich, assuming that Fyodor was the father, and Fyodor doesn't respond to this as well. Like, again, you would expect him, the giant clown that he is, the buffoon, to sort of heap this upon himself. Of course he's my son. Look at what I... But no, he doesn't. He draws a line here. Um, Fyodor, perhaps out of guilt, perhaps because he isn't the father. Who knows? For some reason, his behavior here is inscrutable and subtle. Um, Smerdyakov remains a mystery. But... The other thing that we need to focus on here is, you know, there's a whole bunch of other characters as Alyosha's running around. Much as I want to talk about Smerdyakov and we will come back to him when he starts getting into it with Ivan, we need to talk about the others, and we got to start with Dmitri. Um, so we get the three chapters of Dmitri's ardent confession, or the confession of an ardent heart. First in verse, then in prose, and then, or rather in anecdotes, and then heals up, like, completely heedless. Um... And this is our first chance to really appreciate what's going on with Dmitri as well. Like like I said, we saw him a little bit in the monastery. Uh, we see him sort of getting into a dust-up with his father, arguing about the money, arguing about Grushenka. Here we actually see what's going on under the surface. And the first thing that I want to emphasize here is that if, in fact... Like, all of the Karamazov brothers sort of have this, you know, representation, this this, they are all parts of the soul, and Dmitri is, you know, the passionate, the emotional, where Ivan is the cold and rational. We should also notice that this is deeply connected to Romanticism. Uh, like, this whole first chapter, chapter three, The Confession of an Ardent Heart in verse, is just littered with Dmitri quoting from Schiller, from other romantic Russians, like he's dropping references left and right. Um, He is very much associated with the romantic movement here. And this is you know, the 1870s at this point, romanticism is kind of passe. Realism is here, um, and Dostoevsky himself, like I said uh, before, was hailed as one of the great realist novelists in Russian literature at the time. Uh, but Dostoevsky is keenly aware that the romantics are not dead. That this is also a feud that is going on, and he is keen to sort of plumb its depths. Um, and Dmitri is not just a romantic in the sense that like he loves romanticism and he reads all the poetry, which is obvious from the fact that he can quote it from memory. But also, he is like the perfect romantic hero. Um, there are so many characters like him in romantic literature, and especially in Russian romantic literature. Like he is absolutely a call back to the the romantic military. Military heroes of Pushkin, of you know, even to some degree of Pechorin, the sort of satirical hero of of a hero of our time, um, like Lermontov, Turgenev, per, uh, Pushkin, uh, Gogol. They all have characters like Dmitry, these passionate, heart of gold sort of military people who are soldiers, officers, who you know do these. Great feats of passion and the soul, and you know, are also kind of scoundrels. And like, it's a thing that the Romantics are very interested in. Um, and this goes back as well to, you know, the Sturm und Dragon movement. Like, most of what uh, Dimitri is, in fact, quoting here is Schiller. Which, we've run into Schiller before, like, Fyodor also referenced Schiller when he talked about his two sons as being the two sons of the robbers. Schiller was a hugely important romantic figure, especially to the Russians. Like, we in the English-speaking world, we usually associate romanticism with the romantic poets of the Brits, like, we're talking about Byron, we're talking about Wordsworth, we're talking about Keats, and that's fine i've always had my head in the russians and as a consequence for me the romantics will always be best exemplified by the germans um so we're talking schiller we're talking goethe these are the primary references of the romantic movement as far as Dostoevsky is concerned um and when it develops it develops with the french not with the brits um so we should have an eye towards schiller here we should have an eye towards goethe we should sort of see as the epitome of romantic heroism not so much the you know know, the restrained and somewhat effeminate men writing poetry, um, but rather these souls burning with anguish, Verter, you know, agonizing over Charlotte until he commits suicide, um, Schiller's military heroes and Schiller's talking about old myths, that is all very much on display here. Um, And again, because this is Dostoevsky and he is extremely well versed in the Russians as well, it's definitely these Russian military heroes that we should be mindful of when Dmitry is, is talking about this. These old gentlemen who would, you know, fight duels at the drop of the hat or like engage in some sort of debauchery that was, you know, very passionate and extreme in its moment, maybe more than a little inappropriate. Dmitri is all of that, but he's all of that on both sides. He is the heroic of Pushkin, but he is also the scoundrelly of Pechorin and uh, Hero of Our Time. He is also, you know, the the totally depraved in that sense, um, and he is his father's son as a consequence. Like we d- can definitely see a mirror to Fyodor's debaucheries and depravity in the way that Dmitri handles himself, especially around women. Um, So notice the way that he describes his interaction with Katerina Ivanovna here, because that's sort of the crux of what we're talking about. This is seriously important for understanding Katerina Ivanovna's character, and it's also very important for understanding what the heck is going on with Dmitri at all at this point in time, why he is acting so manically. Uh, So let's sort of take this apart. First off, we have apparently Dimitri's very dissolute relationship with money. Notice that he just doesn't care about it. Like this is this is kind of strange to think based on the way that he's talking about money in the first chapter and how he gets so upset with his father for withholding on him and talking about like what he is due. Notice that here he, he admits it. Like maybe I have exhausted my resources. Maybe my father isn't holding out on me. But I still need money and I still need it from him. Um, He's more reasonable here as far as that's concerned. He's more willing to admit that he is, in fact, at fault. But at the same time as he is willing to admit that he is at fault, he's not fixing himself. He's not changing the way that he feels. He can't. It's too powerful. Like all of those, or, or like the heroes of the Sorrow of Young Virta, or like the Pushkinian heroes, that overwhelming attraction, that overwhelming sensuality, as it's put in this chapter. This is the book, The Sensualists. And in fact, when Fyodor and Dmitry meet, it's a chapter once again called Sensualists. Um, he is overwhelmed by a sensuality and he's disgusted by it. Like, notice he closes his whole chapter on verse with insects, but with sensuality. Like, that is how he understands himself. He is a bug. He is something grotesque and small and petty, but he is also overwhelmed by his emotions, overwhelmed by his lust. Um, and it is lust, he acknowledges. Like, it is talked about in terms of love, but it is also fleeting and passionate, and he knows this. He recognizes that it may very well just be temporary, and that he might very well have to move on. He's done it before. Um, But notice the way that he talks about his escapades when he was in the military, how he, you know, apparently has, at the same time as he's had, like, these fairly frequent love affairs with various women like in the public houses or or you know women who were basically functionally prostitutes um he doesn't seem to speak ill of them he respects them in some cases it seems like he even was in love with them and at the same time he has relationships with women that aren't sexual um he's not just crazily chasing after everything with a skirt he's complicated in that sense still womanizing like that's not uh, not up for debate here um, but at the same time he has a certain code about it and notice what he says about the money in this case he doesn't need it um as much as you know he blows through it as soon as he gets it like the minute he has money he spends it just like water running through his fingers um He says that, like, even without money, he was successful as a womanizer. Sure, women like to receive gifts, and he liked to give them gifts. But at the same time, if he wanted to just have sex, he would find a way. Like, that wasn't the issue. Anytime you've got all those soldiers stationed in a certain area, you can bet that there are peasant women willing to open their skirts at the drop of a hat for the hope of, you know, a comp- of getting money or getting gifts or getting prestige or being protected by them, whatever the case may be. Um, this... Lifestyle was not so dissimilar from our own modern attitudes towards sexuality, um, and Dmitri is pretty pretty frank about this. Like to the point that he embarrasses Alyosha a couple of times. Remember Alyosha, who is naive and who has been living in a monastery for literally several years and has no experience with romantic relationships with the fairer sex. Like Dmitri definitely shocks him on a couple of occasions. But the key here is his relationship with Katerina Ivanovna. Apparently. Katrina Ivanovna has moved in with her father, who is this high-ranking officer in the military. Um, Dmitry sees her and admires her from afar, but knows that he has no chance with her. And then opportunity strikes. Apparently, the father has misplaced some money, like a substantial amount, 4,500 rubles, and um, Namely, he apparently had this deal with this peasant, where like he would give this money to a peasant, and the peasant would like invest it or you know spend something with it and give him all the money back plus interest. He's not technically embezzling; he always returns the money, but he usually makes a little cut on the side. But this time, he gives the forty-five hundred to the peasant. The peasant just comes up with nothing, like it's gone. And nobody knows why. Like, there's no explanation for it. So finally, this bigwig, this general, comes to town. He's like, all right, so where's the 4,500 rubles? And apparently, this colonel, Ekaterina Ivanovna's father, has no recourse. And in fact, the solution that he seems to come to is he's going to try and commit suicide. And we get this almost comical account of him trying to shoot himself with a shotgun but it's, like, too long for him to hold, so he's, like, trying to reach for the trigger with his toe, and he's stopped in the middle of this. Like, notice this is actually a characteristic about about Dostoevsky that, like, we mentioned quite a while ago, but it's worth bringing up here. Dostoevsky is frequently regarded as a comic writer in Russia. Like, as much as, you know, we sort of associate him with, like, darkness and existentialism and angst and deep, meaningful thoughts, like, the Russians just as often consider him, you know, a jokester. Um, And it's scenes like this that really drive home what Dostoevsky's genius is. Like, he can be simultaneously both. Some of his most dramatic scenes are some of the most comical. Um, so scenes like this where he's trying to commit suicide but he's doing it by like shooting himself in the head with a shotgun by using his feet is just kind of weird and silly likewise you know when Dimitri busts in and is you know beating up Gregory and beating up his father on the one hand it's horrible and we're we're, we're worried about the fact that he's going to murder his dad but on the other hand it's silly it's ridiculous like his father is shouting these panicked, you know, insults at him, and Dmitri is just, like, rushing through, and Grigori is complaining about being ungrateful. Like, it's ridiculous. It's often both here. But let's not get too sidetracked on this. Eventually, it, what it comes down to is Dmitri basically sends a letter to the family that says, hey, send Katrina Ivanovna, and I will send her away with 4,500 rubles. And the implication here is clear. This is functionally prostitution um katrina ivanovna is apparently the one who makes the decision in this case and she does show up at Dmitri's ready for whatever Dmitri's about to do and Dmitri himself isn't quite sure what he's going to do like notice the the sort of dynamic in, in dimitri's own recalling of his own sort of internal thought at this point he recognizes that he was doing something depraved here doing something wrong being sick, like his father, he is taking advantage of this woman's vulnerability. He is basically doing something awful. And he also recognizes that under the circumstances, he could definitely leverage this into a very successful marriage. Like, for him, this fairly lowly soldier, to marry the daughter of this major player in the Russian military, this would be a huge step up for him. And he's effectively got this guy by the balls. Um, it, he would theoretically be able to have sex with Katerina Ivanovna, give her the money, and then show up the next day and propose marriage, and there was nothing they could do about it because she could be pregnant. And at the very least, she's not a virgin anymore, and anybody worth their salt is going to notice that on their wedding night. So they would be living with a d- damaged woman who then Dmitry could leverage into his own advantage. But he doesn't do this. As much as this does in fact cross his mind, and he feels bad that it did cross his mind, he sees this as a typically Karamaz- Karamazovian sort of perspective, just so depraved, so debauched, so totally, like, evil, um, that it just, you know, it, it cannot even be explained or defended, but is also natural and, and sort of intrinsic to who they are. His, his reaction instead is he gives her the money, and he bows, and lets her go on her way. And it's the bowing that is especially important here. Like I said, bowing has surprising significance in Dostoevsky's novels. Like, frequently we can tell a lot of char- about a character by the way that he bows. It's significant for Dmitri that it's this entire interaction is virtually silent. He doesn't say a word. There's no word he can say here. He recognizes the fact that he has put Katerina Ivanovna in an incredibly damning position. She has, in fact, accepted his terms, and now he is forced to admit his own depravity. And the only way that he can sort of do this, deal with this, is hand her the money, bow, and bid her good day. Like, that's it. That is the only way out of this situation that doesn't make him feel like a bug like an insect like a sexually randy insect but this in fact works to some degree it doesn't work for the family katerina ivanovna does take the money she takes it back to her father her father pays off the general and it doesn't matter his nerves are so shattered at this point that within like five days he catches brain fever and he's dead didn't matter that they stopped the suicide he's dead either way which is again Kind of awful and kind of tragic. Katerina Ivanovna, she is immediately shipped off elsewhere, and then we start getting letters from her. Dmitri starts to be, you know, informed that she really does care about him. That she was moved by this demonstration, and in fact, they are engaged. She becomes his fiance. He becomes her fiance. She returns the money, and she seems to trust him pretty absolutely, and as far as we can tell, Katerina Ivanovna legitimately loves Dmitri, um, to the point that Dmitri says that like she loves him, and she shouldn't that dmitry is a bad person, that this is a bad match. And in fact, Ivan has apparently evinced some fondness for Katerina Ivanovna, and Dmitry's like, she, he would be better for her anyway. Ivan is a stand-up guy. Ivan is a better person than I am. Ivan is a better match for Katerina Ivanovna. And notice Alyosha's response here. Like, Alyosha does have a similar relationship to Elder Zosima in the first chapter, in that he gets at the... He doesn't get many lines, Throughout these discussions, all of these characters are unburdening their hearts to him, and usually he gets only one or two sentences in reply. This is fairly typical for his character. But notice how insightful those sentences are. He's not up to full sagely Yoda-esque Elders Zasima levels, but he is very much, you know, able to cut to the heart of a lot of what's going on here. Even with his, you know, unfamiliarity with women, his comment here is, well, yeah, but what if she doesn't love Ivan? what if she loves you? And that's the sense we get, looking at Katerina Ivanovna later on in this, in this part. Like, when Alyosha is talking to her, it's clear that Katerina Ivanovna is fond of Dmitri, that she admires his strange combination of, like, unquenchable passion, but also gentility. Dmitri is, at the end of the day, trying to be the best person he can. But it also doesn't matter because at the end of the day, Dmitri has moved on. He feels a sort of horror at what he's done in this case. Like, as much as he did come off as a gentleman, he, Katarina Ivanovna only reminds him of how depraved he actually is, how much of an insect he actually is. The woman who he's actually fallen in love with, or at least is in love with at the moment, is Grushenka. Um, and Grushenka is a different animal altogether. If Katerina Ivanovna is distinguished by her haughtiness, her pride, her even arrogance Alyosha describes at one point, um, all of these characters are because she is noble. She is the quintessential noble woman. Like even in her description later on when Alyosha is talking about Katerina Ivanovna and Grushenka in the same room together, he mentions that Grushenka was tall, but Katerina Ivanovna is extremely tall. Like, she is just overbearingly tall. She is an intimidating woman, in short, for a lot of reasons. She's got money, she's got power, she's beautiful, she's got height over everybody else. Like, this embodies who she is. She is just above us all, and she knows it. And it actually kind of makes her a terrible person, in certain ways. She assumes she can control everyone around her because of her various qualities and and virtues, but she's actually kind of a jerk, because she's condescending in that respect. Um, she makes people feel bad about themselves the way that Dmitri feels bad about himself. Grushenka, however, is not. Um, notice in that same descriptive passage where we get, like, Katerina Ivanovna and her, her height and her nobility, Grushenka is consistently described as sugary, um, which is weird. Like, I know, it's the 19th century, there is definitely some male-gazy stuff happening here. We, I suppose, should just be happy that Dostoevsky is gentleman enough never to talk about her ample bosom or breasts or whatever. Like, it just, it's not. A thing that Dostoevsky is interested in doing. He's a little too gentlemanly for that, but he is totally willing to describe feet, especially feet. Pushkin was in love with feet, and as a result, the entire Russian literary world is obsessed with ladies' feet. I don't know why. It's just weird, but we get descriptions of their feet, of their bodies, of the way that they carry themselves. Like, we get how beautiful they are. Like, that's all there, but it's important for us as readers Sort of assessing their characters to recognize this key distinction. Katerina Ivanovna is noble, and everything about her description speaks to her nobility. Her beauty, her height, her position, all of it is incredibly noble, dangerously noble. Grushenka, on the other hand, is not. Grushenka is out of her class, quite literally. She is putting on an affect of nobility when she is not herself noble. She is likely some middle-class daughter, in fact, I'm pretty sure they describe her this way, who, because of her standing in the community, because of her also great beauty, which has brought a whole bunch of men fawning to her door, but also her skill at dealing with money, something that the nobility doesn't have to worry about so much, she has secured a position for herself. She can, in fact, traffic with fairly well-to-do people but with the acknowledgement that she is a woman of easy virtue, and therefore is not to be had in polite society. The fact that she is, in fact, hanging out with Katerina Ivanovna is shocking to Alyosha. There could not be a worse match, a worse pairing in the world, which Katerina Ivanovna learns by the end of that scene to her, you know, disappointment slash fury. But it's important to notice that that word that Dostoyevsky uses, that sugary quality of uh, Drushenka, this is very much what epitomizes her. She is delectable. She is a guilty pleasure. She is, and I say that as though, you know, referencing her as a man, like, referencing Referencing her as men would reference her, seeing her as something to be consumed in some way, which is, again, misogynistic and awful. But remember, this is Dostoevsky. trust me, Grushenka has more than this to offer, and she's going to be a fascinating character by the end of this, not just an object for men to fight over. Um, Grushenka is very deliberately, very consciously being inviting. She is cultivating a reputation of being easy. That's part of who she is. This is not just some description that Dostoevsky is giving us because he's a man and he only perceives women in terms of their uh, physical qualities. He's describing her this way as a non to her psychological qualities as well. Like, he mentions that she has this sort of put-upon accent, this lisp or something. Um, She has this affection in the way that she talks. Like, this is what he means by this sugary quality. This is a confection. This is something that somebody put together, in this case, that she herself has put together, in order to make her, one, enticing to men, two, appear richer than she actually is, and three, to sort of just be sweet, but sweet and insubstantial. Remember, sugary desserts are not healthy for you. They're dangerous. Have too many of them, and you'll rot your teeth, and you'll get fat, and it's bad for you. Grushenka is that. Grushenka is a person who is willing to snuggle you and flatter you and make you happy and speak exactly to what you most want, but she doesn't give a shit about you, and she will turn on you on a dime like she does with Katerina Ivanovna here. Like, Katerina Ivanovna, in her grandiosity in this scene, talks to Grushenka and, and talks about how they've come to an agreement. Grushenka's not going to pursue Dmitri, and she's going to leave Dmitri to Katerina Ivanovna, and Grushenka could hang out with Fyodor instead. Like, And then Grushenka turns on her. Katerina Ivanovna finishes off her grand speech, her grand agreement, showing off her relationship with Grushenka and their, their common bond here. She's such a wonderful woman, she says, and she kisses her hand three times. And Grushenka's like, oh, it's so unworthy of me that you kiss my hand three times. If I were to repay to the favor, I would kiss your hand 300 times. Like, but notice that it's all affect. It's all trickery. Grushenka is saying all the right words, and she knows that they're all the right words, but there's no honesty in it. Grushenka takes her hand and then says, no, I'm not going to kiss your hand and let this be the moral of the story. You kissed my hand. Grushenka was honored by the most honorable woman in the town, but Grushenka herself didn't have to do anything. Katerina Ivanovna lowered herself to Grushenka's level, thus proving that at the end of the day, Grushenka had the power, and that's what mattered to her. That's what she cared about, as much as again Dostoevsky has given this, us this description and she's presented as this voluptuous beautiful but like also like kind of not classy and, and very accessible woman Grushenka herself has an agenda. She's got this power struggle going on here. And as much as this scene is, you know, Alyosha goes to visit Katerina Ivanovna as he was specifically requested, what do you know? Grushenka's there. No, this is like a mean, nasty, lethal fight between these two women. The tension here is palpable. And Grushenka turns on her, betrays her, and notice that Katerina Ivanovna immediately flies into a fury. Like, Alyosha has to restrain her. And then all of her relations show up, and they're like, get this woman out of here. And, Grushenka and Alyosha's like, don't worry, she's on her way out. And because Grushenka, for some reason, for the same sort of weird, potentially unbelievable reasons that we've talked about, just agrees with Alyosha, and she's like, you're right, I'm gone, bye. Like, notice the reaction here, how tense this situation is, how much she doesn't belong here, how much Katerina Ivanovna made a horrible mistake in thinking that she could control her and that Katarina Ivanovna was not a good person in thinking that she could control Grushenka in this situation. But Grushenka very much is aware of this, plays on this dynamic. Katerina Ivanovna, in her naivete, thinks that she can, you know, pull the wool over Grushenka's eyes with some well-placed words and some noble attentions. Grushenka is way over this game. She is not impressed by Katerina Ivanovna's show of munificence or whatever. Grushenka is very rooted in the realities of the world, and she recognizes that the reality of this situation is that she has leverage over Katerina Ivanovna, and she uses it. She demonstrates it. She proves that she is the one in the seat of power, which is crucial to understanding who she is. As much as we have seen Dimitri and Fyodor fight over this woman, we have to recognize that some of this is her doing. This is some of her machinations. She's tricky, dangerous, interested in getting ahead in this world, and willing to do it by any means necessary but that too is complicated. Let's not just write her off as a femme fatale at this point in time, or, you know, a woman of loose morals and manipulative spidery, whatever we want to do in our male gaze trope catalog. Like, let's recognize that there's more to her than even this. Um, but let's also acknowledge that this is, in fact, her win here. Grushenko won, Katerina Ivanovna zero, and Katerina Ivanovna is getting a lot of zeros lately. Um, but we skipped a whole section. Like, we were talking about Dmitry, we were talking about Katrina Ivanovna, because that made sense, because he was talking about her and their relationship, and that's kind of the whole thing that she and Grushenka are fighting about in the first place. But we missed the entire move over to the, the actual Karamazovs. Um... Alyosha does, in fact, go to visit his father. Like, notice that that was why he was going there anyway. His busy day involved going back to see his parents because, you know, the the parting shot that Fyodor shouted from the carriage was, move back in with me with your mattress and so on. And Alyosha knows that this is kind of just a joke, but he probably should follow up with it anyway because his dad's weird. Um, But he also has to follow up on the note that Katerina Ivanovna passed him. So, you know, that's the fundamental... Uh, to-do list for Aunt Alyosha during this chapter. He's only sidetracked when Dmitri catches him off guard in the alley, um, on his way to his house. Now notice, too, that Dmitri is actually positioned there to watch out for Grushenka. Like, he's basically hiding in the bushes so he can see if Grushenka comes to the Karamazov house. Um, And, in fact, he charges inside when he sees that she walks by. Like, he's like, oh, crap, she's here. Now is my chance. And he, like, dashes inside, and is completely wrong. And it's this huge, you know, again, sort of comic, sort of horrible confusion. Uh, But I do also want to talk about the relationship between Fyodor, Ivan, and Smerdyakov here that Alyosha sort of stumbles across. Uh, The three, like, middle chapters here between, you know, we get the the disputation with Smerdyakov and the chapter on Smerdyakov himself, and then over the Koniak, like, we get this whole sort of look at, uh, Fyodor's domestic life here. Um, and I want to start with Smerdyakov and the disputation. Um, I should mention, you know, we talked about it a little bit last time, but we definitely didn't get to sort of dive into it as deeply as I wanted to. Um, we were talking about liberalism there, how, you know, Musov and Rakuten and Ivan and most of the other characters interact with these sort of new ideas coming into Russia, how it's such a big deal to the Russians that they're inheriting these, you know, new ideas about government, about society, about the woman question, about the all these big ideas, these big talking points that everybody is writing about and fussing over in in the the periodicals in Moscow and in St. Petersburg. And we talked about how each character's liberalism kind of informs how we understand that character, as well as how they sort of interact with the question. Here we get another side of that. Um, So notice that when Alyosha walks in, he walks in on a complex liberal discussion about big ideas. Like, the key here that we are discussing is this idea of faith. Uh, exactly apparently there was this thing that happened in the papers that they read about recently, and fun fact, because this is Dostoevsky, this is in fact a thing that he also read about in the papers. Um, he read it, he writes about it in the writer's diary as well. This is one of the many things, the many random happenings that are showing up in Russian newspapers that get people you know, talking and, and sort of discussing the, the ramifications of. Um, in this case, what happened is apparently there was this soldier down in the Caucasus who was captured by the enemy, and they demanded that he convert renounce Christianity and join the the Muslim faith or they would kill him and they do like they he refuses to announce and they flay him alive they like rip his skin off and then they in fact kill him um, for not renouncing the gospel and you know this is There's a reason why this makes press and, and, you know, the Russian circles. Like, this is a good story. This is a classic martyrdom story. And it's, you know, for... It's especially exciting for the Russians because it will be a concept that unites the old believers with the contemporary liberals. Like, everybody wants to read about this stuff. It's exciting. It's interesting. It's It speaks to who the Russian character is. Um, the old believers, the, the conservatives, the people who are still rooted in Orthodox Christianity admire this man for his faith, for his piety. Um, you know, Christianity is alive and well in Russia, and we are still producing great martyrs. For the liberals, who admittedly don't admire Christianity so much, they're still interested in his heroism, his, you know, the staunchness of his character, the the greatness of who this man was. But notice that Smerdyakov actually disagrees. Smerdyakov presents his entire argument here around if he were, in fact, in this position, if somebody demanded that he convert or die, Smerdyakov would, at the drop of a hat, convert. And everybody's upset about this, of course. Grigory especially is just beside himself. How dare you, you faithless, you heathen. You... But of course, Fyodor is amused. Fyodor just wants to, you know, get people's tempers up. And Ivan is sort of coolly observing in this particular case, as Smerdyakov describes what's going on here, why he feels this way. And Smerdyakov presents a logical argument here, um, this case for why he believes what he is. And he's described here as Balam's ass, Uh, This will be relevant a few times in this novel, so it's worth mentioning the reference here. Um, In the Old Testament, we get this story about Balaam, who is a false prophet. Like, he is a prophet for one of the pagan religions that are, you know, badgering and annoying the Israelites. This is in the Book of Numbers, which nobody reads, because for some reason everybody thinks that the Book of Numbers is all about numbers. I have no idea why they have that idea. It's not like the title is Numbers or anything. Um, And as much as a lot of the book is devoted to the census, and therefore is a lot of numbers, So much of the rest of it is these fascinating, weird stories about the Israelites doing weird stuff in the wilderness. It's a really underrated book in the Bible. Like, I took an entire class on the Pentateuch, and my professor was a specialist. He had written his thesis on the Book of Numbers, so it uh, it has a very special place in my heart. Uh, But in the back half of the Book of Numbers, we get this story about Balaam, who is a prophet for one of the pagan religions, and his ass, Yes, Balaam is riding a donkey so he can go and curse the Israelites. His king has told him, it's time for you to curse the Israelites. And Balaam gets on his ass, and the ass turns around and talks to Balaam and tells him that this is wrong, that he can't do this. And in fact, when Balaam, in fact, tries to curse the Israelites, he ends up blessing them because their god is so much better than his god. It's a weird, weird story in the Old Testament. But notice that Smerdyakov is compared, not to Balaam, but to the ass. Um, And there's definitely supposed to be a connotation here. Like, we are definitely supposed to have the same association that we would get if, you know, Shakespeare started talking about asses, like, in Much Ado About Nothing or in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Like, Smyrnyakov is presented to us as a fool, but he's not a fool. Smerdyakov is acting deliberately here, and his relationship to what he's arguing is similar to Fyodor's, insofar as Fyodor loves to just get excited about some topic that he doesn't actually care about in order to sort of, like, escalate the tensions and get people worked up and and to sort of goad them into doing stuff. But where Fyodor is doing it out of this sort of quasi-harmless buffoonery, he just wants to, you know, rile people up for riling people up, people's up. Say, I don't even know. That was not a functional sentence. He wants to rile people up just for its own sake, just for the sheer pleasure in seeing people get all flustered the way that Miusov got flustered every time that Fyodor would do something particularly silly in front of the monks. Smerdyakov is out to rile people up and make them angry, to get them upset, and specifically to get them upset at him. Smerdyakov is smart enough that he is able to weave together these arguments that are seemingly airtight, but they are almost always deliberately attacking the ideas of the people around them, the traditional values in the room. Smerdyakov, in some sense, is performing like a jester here. Like, here is Fyodor and Ivan, and they're having this discussion about this thing that happened in the papers the other day, and Smerdyakov is presenting a devil's advocate position just to be entertaining, in some respect. But notice that where Fyodor is willing to take any side of an issue, it doesn't matter to him, and in fact, the most foolish side is frequently the one that he'll land on. So, you know, just to be contrary, he'll say things like, actually, I think L- stinking Lizaveta is very attractive, and then try and prove it in some particularly diabolical and completely immoral way. Smerdyakov, on the other hand, is offensive. Deliberately so. So here we have, again, this situation where virtually everybody agrees. Like, Fyodor might make jokes about this guy who, you know, for the cause of his faith has been flayed and died. Ivan might very well make some sort of commentary to the, you know, Russian spirit or something. And now Yosha is most likely going to empathize with this guy. Like, think about how awful it is that he had to go through this, the suffering involved. Notice that Smerdyakov calls him a fool. Smerdyakov has no respect for what he has done. And all that he cares about is undermining the value of what has happened here. I want to stress this because, again, each of the characters we've run into has a different attitude towards these sort of intellectual discussions. Miyusov is only using them to sort of elevate his own position. He just wants to sound smart. Fyodor uses these intellectual discussions to rile everybody up and make them absurd and ridiculous. He is basically the Matt Stone and Trey Parker of the 19th century Russian world. All ideas are absurd, so he's just going to, like, heighten the absurdity of the whole thing. Ivan legitimately believes in this stuff, and he's wrestling through these difficult ideas, as Elder Zosima points out. Like, he is a great man struggling with great ideas, coming to no conclusion, and he hopes to resolve them at some point, even if it seems a little hopeless. And then we have Rakuten, who's just in it for the money. Like, he wants to profit off of it. Yes, he's willing to goad people, but it's largely so he himself can get to some, you know, new financial setting, so he can elevate and you know advance himself smerdiakov is a classic nihilist and i mean that in the technical term here like smerdiakov in the 19th century, is exactly what the Russians would have understood as a nihilist. Um, and the term nihilist is, is itself rather new and distinctly Russian. Most people claim or argue that the, the origin of the term nihilist is actually from Turgenev's fathers and sons, along with anarchists. These two terms were very much being thrown around in the late latter half of the 19th century as these sort of equal terms for, for students who had respect for nothing. But insofar as they started to divide, anarchists became people who honestly believed in anarchy. This was a principle that they cared about. They aren't just overthrowing governments because of, you know, some sort of perversity, but rather they're overthrowing governments because they legitimately believe that anarchy is an advantageous state for human beings. Nihilists believe in nothing. Nihilists are just out to cause trouble, to undermine convictions, to reject idealism to show that nothing matters, to prove that the world is shit in some way. And Smerdyakov does this with a certain sort of perverse glee here. And notice his argument. He is essentially saying that this guy who, you know, self-sacrificed himself for the sake of his faith was ridiculous because the very fact that he had considered it, the very fact that he would have considered giving up his faith would itself have wrecked the faith. Smyrnikov is saying that if he said, I renounce my faith, I become a Muslim, it would have already taken place, already transpired, and he would, by saying so, not in fact be violating his faith anymore. It would already be gone from him. And therefore he would be doing nothing wrong. God could not blame him for giving up his faith when God himself had already stripped his faith, his Christianity, from him. That's the essential argument that Smerdyakov is making. And he's making it from a theological perspective. Like, notice that that's the thing that he's doing. He's turning Christian theology upon itself. That's the plan here. So, notice the way that he describes it. So, we'll see here on, on page 130, this is the big full paragraph where he's talking about it. Consider for yourself, Grigory Vasilyevich. Smyrniakov went on gravely and evenly, conscious of his victory, but being magnanimous, as it were, with the vanquished enemy. Consider for yourself, in the scriptures it is said that if you have faith, even as little as the smallest seed, and then say unto this mountain that it should go down into the sea, it would go, without the slightest delay, at your first order. "'Well then, Grigory Vasilyevich if I am an unbeliever, and you are such a believer that you're even constantly scolding me, then you, sir, try telling this mountain to go down not into the sea, because it's far from here to the sea, sir, but even just into our stinking stream, the one behind, beyond our garden, and you'll see for yourself right then that nothing will go down, sir, but everything will remain in its former order and security, no matter how much you shout, sir.' And that means that you too, Grigory Vasilyevich, do not believe in a proper manner, and merely scold others for it in every possible way. And then again, taking also the fact that no one in our time, not only you, sir, but decidedly no one, starting even from the highest persons down to the very last peasant, sir, can shove a mountain into the sea, except maybe one person on the whole earth, two at the most, and even they could be secretly saving their souls somewhere in the Egyptian desert so they can't even be found, if all that's so. If all the rest come out as unbelievers, can it be that all the rest, that is the population of the whole earth, sir, except those two desert hermits, will be cursed by the Lord and in his mercy, which is so famous he won't forgive a one of them? So I too have hopes that though I doubted once, I'll be forgiven if I shed tears of repentance. Notice Fyodor's reaction here stop shrieked Fyodor Pavlovich in an apotheosis of delight so you still suppose that those two the kind that can move mountains really exist Ivan cut a notch write it down here you have the whole Russian man. notice what first what Smerdyakov is arguing here Smerdyakov is using the bible he is literally quoting this passage from I believe it's Luke where it says that if you have a, a grain of faith the size of a mustard seed then you can tell this mountain to move and it will do so and Smerdyakov is arguing, I haven't seen any mountains move lately. And notice how obsequious he is, how he keeps interlacing his speech with those sirs as though he's being polite. Dostoevsky even introduces this whole speech as though he's being magnanimous with his vanquished foe. There's something predatory about this, how Smerdyakov is playing with his food in some sense. How Smirnyakov knows that Grigory cannot keep up with him, that Grigory is more simple-minded than he, Smerdyakov is, and as a result, Smerdyakov is just twisting the knife, making sure that he is absolutely triumphant. He doesn't settle for just his argument about, like, oh, well, his faith was already gone, and therefore he would be doing nothing wrong by renouncing his faith. No, he goes a step further. He argues that no one has faith. That since mountains aren't moving into the sea on a regular basis, and since Gregory cannot order some mountain to even move into the stinking stream going beside their house, therefore he too is faithless. He too is an unbeliever. Now this is a distortion of the text. I don't want to deny that. But it is within the realm of acceptable interpretation. If Jesus is literally saying that anyone who has even the tiniest bit of faith could theoretically order mountains to move, and no one can do this, then the logical conclusion here is nobody has faith. And there is a certain strain of Christian interpretation that sees the act of faith as being much more rare than we typically do. Like, Kierkegaard, his attack on Christendom is basically making essentially this argument. He's saying that not everyone can be Christians, and for us to be living in a society that claims to be Christian is absurd. Christianity is demanding. It is very, very restrictive. It is extremely difficult to do it right. It is not just some sort of lazy man's religion where all you do is, you know, sit around and claim to have faith and you immediately get saved. No, Christianity is hard freaking work. It is a mental discipline that requires constant vigilance, constant association with God. That's the level of faith that Kierkegaard is emphasizing. And to some degree, Smerdyakov is saying the same. But where Kierkegaard is trying to sort of weed out bad Christians, Smerdyakov is instead trying to undermine the entire thing. Notice that Fyodor picks up on this, that Smirnyakov is willing to allow for the two hermits out in the desert, busy saving their souls, who could, theoretically, with the monumental faith that they possess, order the mountain into the sea and have it obey. Notice that Fyodor gets excited about this. Oh, Smerdyakov, who knew that you were such a firm believer that you believe that even two people have enough faith to do this? And he, in fact, like appeals to Ivan here. He's like, Ivan, do you believe in the two people? And Ivan is very skeptical. But at the same time, he's also saying that this is typically Russian. And they go back and forth on this. Like Ivan's like, actually, this is not all that Russian. He's like, yeah, but the two, the two hermits, that's a Russian thing. And Ivan's like, yeah, that's very Russian. The emphasis here is that even those with no faith are willing to allow for the possibility that some faith exist. Some people are doing this. Notice that even in Smerdyakov's completely nihilistic attack on Christianity, attack on Christians across the board, his refusal to acknowledge Grigory's faith as faith, and his rejection of literally everyone who claims to be a Christian on the grounds that their faith is not enough to move mountains, that is Smerdyakov essentially saying Christianity is empty. There's no one in that category. Nobody lives up to it. But the assumption there is that Christianity does in fact exist. And Smerdyakov makes that assessment, makes that allowance. Even in his nihilism, Smerdyakov cannot give up on Christianity altogether. He is forced to admit the possibility of these two believers somewhere. Even if Smerdyakov himself believes that God exists and that this faith is possible, he acknowledges tacitly that he is not a Christian. And in fact, neither, he and Ivan are in a very similar position insofar as that's concerned. Notice that Ivan had the same reaction when he was talking about his Christianity to Father Zosima. He very much is saying that either it's this really important, really valuable, really great thing that has built society, and you know, this is the pinnacle of human achievement, or it's nonsense. And he wants to believe, and can't. He asks Zosima, what must I do to believe, essentially? And Zosima is like, I can't answer that question for you. I can't instruct you in how to overcome your belief. Madame Koklikov, he did. He gave her the answer. Love people, and that will follow. But he doesn't give Ivan this same argument. He knows that Ivan's mind is so strong that it's not going to be tricked by actions in the same way that Madame Koklikov is. So here we have these sort of mirror image characters. We have Ivan, who is earnestly struggling with this, who honestly wishes he could believe and can't due to the rationality of his upbringing, due to the firmness of his convictions, due to the the careful precision of his mind, and Smerdyakov, who comes very much to the same conclusion that there is no God, that there is no immortality, that all of the supposed Christianity we see around us is foolishness and nonsense. But where Ivan is trying to get to Christianity from where he's sitting, Smerdiakov has given up and doesn't want it. He wants to destroy it. He is out to be a nihilist, to wreck the convictions of others. And we see this even in the interaction between Fyodor, Ivan, and Alyosha a moment later. like Fyodor starts asking them straight out, Ivan, is there a god? No. Alyosha, is there a god? Yes. Ivan, is there immortality? No. Alyosha, is there immortality? Yes. Like, it's not even an argument. It's not even a discussion. Fyodor knows that there's no discussion to be had here. He just wants to pit his sons against each other. Like, not even in a mean way here. He recognizes that they're just so diametrically opposite from one another, that Ivan stands on the same side of the room with Smerdyakov even if their convictions, the reasons why they take their stances, are radically different but then he also admires Alyosha for the simplicity of his convictions. And notice that he follows up this whole sort of interview, this this series of questions, with the question, Ivan, do you love your brother? And Ivan says yes. And Fyodor follows it up by saying, do love him. I love him. You also love him. Everyone should love Alyosha. It's a fascinating sort of interview here. On the one hand, we have this very intellectual, very high-minded, very rational, and admittedly very liberal and somewhat nihilistic discussion of this high-minded ideal. Is, in fact, this guy who professed his faith in the right for doing so? Is there Christian evidence that he is not, in fact, the martyr that he appears to be? And that's what Smerdyakov argues. He is trying to burst the bubble here. Here is this guy that everybody remarks is really awesome and really cool and really motivated by his convictions. and We admire the courage of his faith and so on and so forth. And Smerdyakov is like, no, he is a fool. He is not actually a Christian. He can't move mountains. If he really was a Christian, if he really had faith, he could command the mountain to crush his adversaries and it wouldn't be an issue. Legions of angels would swoop down and save him and it would not matter if that was really what his faith looked like. So Smerdyakov is very much trying to disillusion us on that front, but he's no match for Alyosha. Alyosha is unfazed, and that is what, even if Fyodor and Smerdyakov and Ivan all agree that Alyosha is wrong, like they literally just said it, Fyodor agrees with Smerdyakov, he definitely wants to talk about like, you know, all of these ideas of atheism and how does Christianity fall apart and how is it that the theology doesn't make sense or hold together like let's rile each other up and and come to these liberal conclusions even if Ivan in his conviction is forced to admit I have to be an atheist it's the only rational way to, to comport myself all of them at the end of the day despite their disagreement with Alyosha despite the fact that they think that he's wrong they admire him just like this one random soldier who was willing to die for the sake of his faith, even at the end of the day, Fyodor and Ivan admire him as well. Admire the strength of his convictions there. Now notice that the only one who doesn't profess his love for Alyosha here is Smerdyakov Like, even Grigory, it's sort of tacitly understood. We don't get an actual profession of faith at this moment from Grigory, but Grigory, of course, is kind of, you know, simple-minded in his faith anyway. Alyosha is strong in his faith, and Ivan and Fyodor both acknowledge this, both admire him, both love him. Just as we said at the outset that Alyosha is someone that people admire. They fall in love with him. They bear their hearts to him. This is what matters. At the end of the day, all of their quibbling over theology, all of their atheistic professions is secondary to their love for Alyosha, to their love for what makes goodness in some sense. And Dostoevsky, I think, is very attentive to this. It is a common trait in all of his novels. All of these people who profess to be atheists, who believe the most heinous ideas, tend to, at the end of the day, be good people. That's the guiding philosophy behind his writing, almost. It's why all of his characters remain compassionate, even when they're monsters, even when they're killing each other, even when Dimitri charges into the room and is kicking his father in the face. We are not caused to condemn him. We still appreciate him. And Alyosha doesn't condemn him either. Like, he's like, please don't do that again. But he understands. Dimitri is still human. Dimitri is still lovable. Dimitri is moved by his overwhelming passion. We feel for him. And Fyodor is kind of a dick, and does deserve to get kicked in the face to some degree. But we admire and identify with him as well. We are compassionate towards him. Dostoevsky presents him as a full character, as a human being, with his weaknesses. He is often bad, often depraved, often doing awful things. And yet, Dostoevsky loves him, and wants us to love him as well. Wants us to recognize, as Elder Zossima did, that really all this guy needs is a little bit more compassion in his life to stop putting on errors, and, you know, making a fool of himself when he's feeling uncomfortable. And Alyosha also sees this. Alyosha doesn't condemn. Alyosha sees this as tragic, not as diabolical, as monstrous. But it's not a guarantee, because again, Smerdyakov doesn't have anything to say about Alyosha at this point, and we should watch for that. We should look and see if we can catch Smerdyakov stating an opinion about Alyosha because that's going to be the deciding factor for him. If Smerdyakov does in fact admire Alyosha then he falls into the same category as all of these other Russian characters who despite their high-minded ideals at the end of the day recognize goodness. And admittedly even Smerdyakov does slip here as Smerdyakov admits the possibility of those two hermits in the desert. That is typically Russian, Fyodor reminds us. But we don't know if Smerdyakov is admitting this because of his deeply held convictions, or if Smerdyakov, at the end of the day, really does love people, if he really is a good person. That's less obvious here. Just like it is with Rakuten, where we know that Rakuten is, you know, ambitious and and sort of like only spouting these ideas and causing trouble for the sake of his own advancement, we don't know if that's all the way down, if Rakuten could be reformed under the right circumstances. We wonder the same about Smerdiakov here. And that's a really important thing to note. All of these characters are redeemable, it seems. All of them have these lovable human qualities. All of them are, to some degree, redeemed by their love for Alyosha. So the characters who don't love Alyosha, the question is, remains. Can they be redeemed? Or are they so relentlessly evil? Are they beyond that? Are they beyond that compassion? Is Dostoevsky making them out to be just straight up villains in some cases? It's an interesting sort of thing to think about. I mean, watch these characters look for the evidence that they have redeemed themselves by the end of this novel. But in the meantime, there's only one last thing that I kind of want to touch on because I was very much neglected it last time and I don't want to neglect the two chapters in a row. I want to talk about Lisa, um, the girl who Madame Koklikov brought to Elder Osima and who has the paralytic legs. And Elder Osima apparently healed her, but Elder Osima also didn't claim to heal her and Madame Koklikov is very concerned about her. But also, the one thing that I didn't talk about last time and I want to talk about now is Lisa is apparently in love with Alyosha. And it's silly. It's childish. It's ridiculous. Like, as much as I've just been talking about how, like, whether or not you love Alyosha is this really important thing for deciding whether or not you can be redeemed and your, like, fundamental Christianity all depends on it, and whether or not you were a good person, whether or not Dostoevsky makes you compassionate, it was all sort of dependent on what is your relationship to Alyosha. Lisa loves Alyosha as a child loves Alyosha. It is silly. It is... Girlish, like we see her pulling faces at Alyosha in the last chapter and Alyosha's like hiding behind the elder like keep in mind these are in fact teenagers like Lisa has to be something like 15 16 and Alyosha's gotta be at least 18 or 19 at this point in time like they're behaving like children and there is something childish about the whole interaction but that as much speaks to their character as anything else like Alyosha is a teenager, but he is naive. He's been raised in the monastery for the last few years. And the elder, at the same time, laughs about it. Like, he's like, all right, come on, you're being really mean to Alyosha. Like, that too counts as a sin, if a petty and silly and childish one. But here we actually see the, the deep, most ardent confession of Lisa's heart, because she has the, like, Katerina Ivanovna pass her, pass Alyosha this little pink note in which she confesses her deep and abiding love for Alyosha. It's just silly and childish. And, you know, at at the same time as we have all of these very dramatic things happening, like, notice that over the course of this book, we've had all of these characters ruin themselves, physically or intellectually or their reputation, in front of Alyosha. Like, Dimitri has confessed that he is a terrible person and, and sort of, like, talked about how he, he has ruined Katrina Ivanovna in some ways, and then we get Fyodor who literally gets the crap kicked out of him by Dmitri, and then we get Katrina Ivanovna, who has ex- overextended herself, and now there's a scandal in her house, and then finally here, we get this chapter literally called One More Ruined Reputation, where we see... Dimitri once again sort of confessing his evil and and talking about how he you know has this one thing one mysterious thing that keeps beating his chest um that is keeping him from like an even greater sort of depravity and and scandal um that's presumably the one more ruined reputation here but at the same time we also get Lisa and and her secret her deep and abiding secret that she has to leave the monastery and then they they will love each other and, and get married and I don't know. Like, I'm not sure how to read this at this point in time, just because we don't have enough evidence to go on. Like, notice Alyosha's reaction, though. The fact that he smiles and laughs, and then kind of feels like it was sinful to do that, and then smiles and laughs again. Like, this is presented to us as something not serious. Alyosha doesn't think it's terribly serious. Like, it is terribly serious. The Elder Zosima recognizes that it's terribly serious. You know, it is silly, it is childish, but it is still a sin, he emphasizes. And for Lisa, it's obviously serious. She wouldn't go to such pains, wouldn't write such confessions if she wasn't deadly serious about this. But it's deadly serious the way that a 16-year-old girl's crush is deadly serious. It is deadly serious to her, and everyone around her is like, oh honey, give it a year, give it two, and you're not even going to care about this person. Like, it doesn't matter. It is all fleeting. And Alyosha's reaction to it, notice that, that sort of laugh, that smile, that, you know, he obviously doesn't take it terribly seriously, but he's flattered nonetheless. The sin here is probably vanity. That's the one that he's a little concerned about. Like, on the one hand, he recognizes that smiling and laughing about this is is mean. It, it's not nice. Like here is this girl being very very honest to him, and he doesn't consider it very serious. He doesn't take it seriously. He sort of jokes about it, and that's that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't take you know you shouldn't take these ardent confessions lightly. And he probably is flattered, and he probably recognizes his own vanity and, and liking to be liked. Um, but he also ends on the laugh. Like, it's okay to laugh about this. Dostoevsky is sort of prompting us to, to laugh about this. It is silly. It is light-hearted. Especially in this chapter with, like, potential parasites, and Smerdyakov undermining the very foundations of Christianity, and Dmitry and his, you know, passionate, like, Potential depravity, the insect who is sensual, like we've got all this really serious, really big drama happening here. Katrina Ivanovna ruining herself. krushenka betrays Katrina Ivanovna, like one more ruined reputation, scandal everywhere. Like it's all big deal and it's all not. Alyosha is right to laugh. Like we said, you know, earlier, some of this is meant to be comic, it's meant to be silly, it's ridiculous. All of these people with all of their passions, all of their big drama, all of. You know, this is one of the most famous big novels in the history of human writing. Like, the copy that I've got from Peter and Volokhansky is something like 750 plus pages. Like, we're, we're topped out here only by, like, War and Peace. And this, it is famous as being a novel of big ideas and big drama and big, like, cosmic forces of good and evil, cosmic. Fo- war between you know different like depraved individuals and probing at the dark heart of human beings and you know the rape of lizaveta by by Fyodor and you know the the disgracing of katrina ivanovna and grushenka who now knows about this like it's all on the one hand really meaningful really weighty really important really serious really dark really profound and on the other hand it's not it really isn't for Alyosha, he sort of recognizes, he stands as an outsider to so much of this. Um, and that's what makes him compelling. Like, he isn't caught up in the drama. Like, yes, for his father and for Dmitri, it's this life or death struggle. Dmitri is seriously considering literally murdering his own father over the sake of this woman who is herself depraved and awful. But at the same time, Alyosha has this sort of unfailing conviction that these are all good, silly people. Why are they all good, silly people? Why? Because they love him, of course. And they do. Again, with the possible exception of Smyrdyakov and Rakitin, who jury is still out there. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter all that much to Alyosha. It isn't that big a deal. It is, as Shakespeare would put it, much ado about nothing and we need to remember this. This is why this novel is supposed to be funny. It is silly. It is dramatic and soapy and all this other stuff, but at the same time, these people are just struggling, suffering, and they're being stupid, and they should stop. It would be better if they stopped. It would be much better for them. It would be much better for the people that are hurting, and if they would all just quit taking each other so seriously, maybe, maybe they could actually do something good. Maybe they could actually make the world better instead of making it so damn dark. So anyway, we'll leave it there for today. For next time, we are going to read book four. We're going to introduce ourselves at long last to a bunch of children, because, you know, why not? Um, and we're going to basically take a rather dramatic chain or direction away from quite a few other things. So, yeah. Let's see what we have in our book for strings, and see how dramatic and how silly it actually turns out to be. I look forward to, you talk, to talking about talking. Uh, apparently, I just cannot string sentences together today. I am just totally tongue-tied. It's been a weird week. It's been a weird semester, and it's going to get weirder. Anyway, I look forward to talking to you about it soon in the next possibly hours. I'm hoping to get these things released a little faster since I know I'm still behind schedule, but so help me, we'll fix this, and I'll talk to you about book four very soon. Farewell and happy reading. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. In the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, And please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, The more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running, uh, but the more money I'm making through this prog- project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.